Welcome to the teaching ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Santa Maria, California. Join our pastors as they share biblical principles of God's transforming grace so that you may learn God's word in order to live God's way. Good morning. If you are visiting, we are working our way through the book of Nahum. Nahum was a prophet that lived in Judah in the 7th century BC, and even though it seems like on the surface when you read it, there isn't much relevance for us today, it is the living and active Word of God, and there is much to learn from Nahum. Maybe you're familiar with the city of Nineveh. 100 plus years prior to Nahum's prophecy, the prophet Jonah was sent to the city of Nineveh because they were a wicked city. And God said, I'm going to wipe you out unless you change your ways. And they listened to Jonah, and they changed their ways, and God relented from sending disaster. Now we fast forward 100 plus years into the future, and Nineveh has returned to their wickedness. And God says, it's too little too late. Now I am going to wipe you out. So that's where we're at to kind of bring you up to speed. Let's pray, and then we'll dive into God's word. Father, there are two central truths that we see clearly in your word, and that is one, that you are holy and you are set apart and there is no one like you. The other being, and it stings more, is that we are sinners. Every single person here is a sinner. And God, out of your great love, you remedied the chasm that existed between us sinners and you, a holy God, and you did that through the perfect life and the perfect death and the perfect resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for that. Some of us believe that truth. Some of us have put all of our hope in you based upon that truth that Jesus is the rescue for sinners, that he is Emmanuel, God, with us. And some of us here, God, may have never done that. And I pray as your word is proclaimed, that your spirit would come and open their eyes to see the beauty of what it means to know you, the triune God. Open our eyes to see wonderful things out of your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Every human being is thirsty. Some actually quench their thirst, others spend their lives dying of thirst. That's what we'll see in Nahum chapter 2 today. In his book, The Silver Chair, part of the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis describes the encounter that this young girl named Jill has as she comes to Narnia, that place she calls it for the first time. Soon after her arrival, Jill and her friend Scrub are on the edge of a cliff and Scrub falls off and Jill passes out. And when she wakes up from that experience, she finds Aslan, the powerful lion, sitting right next to her. Aslan then disappears into a thick forest and then Jill realizes how desperately thirsty she is. So we'll pick up the story there. Without a glance at Jill, the lion rose to its feet and gave one last blow. Then, as if satisfied with its work, it turned and stalked slowly away back into the forest. It must be a dream. It must, it must, said Jill to herself. I'll wake up in a moment. But it wasn't, and she didn't. 
I do wish we'd never come to this dreadful place, said Jill. I don't believe Scrub knew any more about it than I do. Or if he did, he had no business to bring me here without warning me what it was like. It's not my fault he fell over that cliff. If he'd let me alone, we should both be all right. And then she remembered again the scream that Scrub had given when he fell and burst into tears. Crying is all right in its way while it lasts, but you have to stop sooner or later And then you still have to decide what to do. When Jill stopped, she found that she was dreadfully thirsty. She had been lying face downward and now she sat up. The birds had ceased singing and there was perfect silence except for one small persistent sound which seemed to come from a good distance away. She listened carefully and felt almost sure it was the sound of running water. Jill got up and looked around her very carefully. There was no sign of the lion, but there were so many trees about that it might easily be quite close without her seeing it. For all she knew, there might be several lions. But her thirst was very bad now, and she plucked up her courage to go and look for that running water. She went on tiptoes, stealing cautiously from tree to tree and stopping to peer around her at every step. The wood was so still that it was not difficult to decide where the sound was coming from. It grew clearer every moment And sooner than she expected, she came to an open glade and saw the stream, bright as glass, running across the turf a stone's throw away from her. But although the sight of the water made her feel ten times thirstier than before, she didn't rush forward and drink. She stood as still as if she had been turned into stone, with her mouth wide open. And she had a very good reason. Just on this side of the stream lay the lion. It lay with its head raised and its two forepaws out in front of it like the lions in Trafalgar Square. She knew at once that it had seen her for its eyes looked straight into hers for a moment and then turned away as if it knew her quite well and didn't think much of her. If I run away, it'll be after me in a moment, thought Jill. And if I go on, I shall run straight into its mouth. Anyway, she couldn't have moved if she tried and she couldn't take her eyes off it. How long this lasted, she could not be sure. It seemed like hours. And the thirst became so bad that she almost felt she would not mind being eaten by the lion if only she could be sure of getting a mouthful of water first. If you're thirsty, you may drink. They were the first words she had heard since Scrub had spoken to her on the edge of the cliff. For a second, she stared here and there, wondering who had spoken. And then the voice said again, If you are thirsty... Come and drink. And of course she remembered what Scrub had said about animals talking in that other world and realized that it was the lion speaking. Anyway, she had seen its lips move this time and the voice was not like a man's. It was deeper, wilder, and stronger. A sort of heavy, golden voice. It did not make her any less frightened than she had been before, but it made her frightened in a rather different way. Are you not thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill? The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill? I make no promise, said the lion. 
Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. There is no other stream to drink from to find satisfaction in this life. Sure, we try it. We go to other streams. We try to find fulfillment and satisfaction in all of the streams that this world offers to us. We go to the broken, empty cisterns of the world, as the prophet Jeremiah says, to to slake our thirst, to quench our thirst. We go to those streams, but we find that they do not satisfy us. We were made by God to glorify Him and to enjoy Him forever. Which is why our mission statement here at Grace is this. We exist to ignite a passion in every person to glorify and to enjoy God everywhere and in everything. You and I were made to drink from the river of delights, according to Psalm 36, verse 8. The Assyrians and their capital city of Nineveh were a bloodthirsty people. They craved bloodshed and violence. Satisfaction for the Assyrians came through bloodshed, the torture of their enemies, and the plundering of their goods. That's why Nahum is preaching about their destruction. They were drinking from the broken, empty cisterns of this world. Our big idea today is this. Taste and see that the Lord is good or die of thirst. I think that's the picture that Nahum is painting here in chapter 2. Nahum already told us in chapter 1 verse 7 that the Lord is good. I also believe that Nahum has Psalm 34 and Psalm 35. Psalm 34 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. I think Nahum has these two psalms kind of ringing in his ears as he prophesies. Some homework if you want. Read Psalm 34 and Psalm 35 alongside Nahum and notice the parallels. In verses 11 and 12, as Greg read earlier, Nahum describes the Ninevites as these bloodthirsty lions. They abused other people. They captured them. They tortured them. They killed them. And they carried off their treasures and returned like lions to their dens to feast on the spoils of war. The Ninevites took pleasure in all of the treasures that they got when they went on their war expeditions. They delighted in all the stuff that they had. And they delighted in torture. They delighted in other things. They delighted in other streams, to use Aslan's language, rather than drinking from the river of delights that God offers to humanity. If 
any human drinks from another stream, it is a very dangerous thing to do. Look at verse 1. Nahum says, The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. Nahum begins to describe the downfall of Nineveh with vivid detail, but you must understand that, and I mean this as respectfully as I, as I can, I love Nahum, but he's a little ADD in this chapter. He will move from person to person, different people will be speaking, he will be describing different people, so you've got to be ready, because he's going to move his camera several times as we go through this chapter. In verse 1, Nahum is speaking. He has assumed the role of a watchman on a city wall. In the ancient Near East, the city walls were high, and watchmen would stand atop the city wall. They would scan the horizon to see if any enemy uh, armies were approaching, to warn the city that you know, the enemy is coming. That's what Nahum does here. He's acting like a watchman on the city. He's turning to the city of Nineveh. And he's warning them that their enemy, the Lord, is approaching. Of course, any attempt to flee by Nineveh would be futile because grace and time had run out for them and they could never run away from God. So Nahum sounds the warning that the scatterer was coming. The scatterer is the Lord, but we know that the Lord used the Medes and the Babylonians in 612 BC to wipe out the city of Nineveh. Nineveh and the Assyrians had been the great scatterer. They would show up, they would disperse people all over their kingdom, they would scatter people, and now the great scatterer, Yahweh the sovereign Lord, was coming through his instrument, the Medes and the Babylonians. So Nahum screams this fourfold warning to Nineveh in verse 1. He says, Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all of your strength. Four rapid-fire imperatives challenge the inhabitants of Nineveh to throw all of their strength into defending their city. And then Nahum switches gears and begins addressing the nation of Judah in verse 2. Look at verse 2. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. Nahum stops addressing Nineveh for a moment so that he can address the people of God living in Judah. He does this to inject some gospel hope into Judah. Why does he stop? Why does he switch gears? Because I think Nahum saw what Christians saw in the book Pilgrim's Progress. John Bunyan describes Christians' approach to the palace beautiful He says that Christian entered a narrow passage and he saw two lions up ahead. And then Bunyan adds these words. The lions were chained, but Christians saw not the chains. Sometimes God's people can't see the chains. All we see are the lions. All we see are our enemies. And Nahum pauses in his prophecy. He says, time out. Judah, listen to me. I know you see the great lion Assyria. I know you think she is about to pounce on you. But let me tell you something. She is chained because the Lord is coming and he will wipe them out. He is about to restore Jacob. God's people 
always need to be reminded of this truth. God's people always need to be reminded that we must taste and see that the Lord is good or we will die of thirst. Nineveh would die of thirst the way the rich man does in the story that Jesus tells in Luke 16. As the rich man had collected his riches and hoarded them and found delight in them above God, and then he went to hell where he wanted Lazarus just to drop one drop of cool water on his tongue to bring him relief. So Nineveh too, like that man, would die of thirst. And then Nahum switches gears and he starts describing the coming onslaught of the Medes and the Babylonian armies. Look at verses 3 through 4. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. Picture the armies approaching here. They carry red shields and they're, carrying, they're, they're wearing red, which is a symbol of the bloodshed that they were about to spill. In fact, it may be that their clothes and shields are stained with the blood of their previous enemies that they had wiped out. Their chariots are covered with metal that made them impenetrable. They flash in the sun. They race like lightning bolts through the city streets and the villages outside the city walls of Nineveh. Their cypress spears were long and sturdy and enabled them to take their enemies out from a distance. You've got to picture the scene. You've got to become a citizen of Nineveh just for a moment. So I dub you all citizens of Nineveh just for a few moments. You walk up the steps to the city wall. You hear the, uh, the sound of approaching horses. You, see, you hear this army, and when you see them, it's this massive red army approaching. Occasionally, there are bright flashes of light as the sun reflects off their chariots, as you see the chariots darting back and forth. You see spears running through the backs of your friends as they try to flee. You've got to visualize Nahum's prophecy. You've got to feel it in your heart, O citizen of Nineveh. Remember, you're not on the central coast right now. You're in the ancient Near East. Then the chariots enter the villages surrounding your city. They're on the outskirts of your city. This is where you were born and raised. The chariots have entered the suburbs of Nineveh outside the city walls. They race madly through suburban and village streets like lightning. They're darting back and forth. The drivers of the chariots have their hands on the 10 and 2 position, if you will, for maximum control. They're darting here and there, and they start cutting people down with their swords and spears. Blood is covering the streets and the fields. There's panic and there's confusion. And then Nahum switches gears again, and he addresses the king of Nineveh now. Look at verse 5. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. Now that the enemy has invaded the metroplex in the suburbs of Nineveh, and his citizens are being wiped out, the king of Nineveh remembers something. I've got an army. It's as if the king is dumbfounded as, is, and he's in shock as he looks out over the city wall from his palace and he sees this army approaching him. He's thinking, how can this be? 
We are the superpower of the ancient Near East. People are afraid of us. When our name is mentioned, people shake in their knees. How can some army be taking out one of my villages? Picture the king staring blankly out over the wall as the army approaches. And perhaps he's awakened by one of his aides who comes to him and says, Sir, what must we do? And then the king remembers, wait, I have an army. Send out the officers. Send out the troops. And now picture the Ninevite soldiers running through the streets. They're stumbling over each other. It's disorganized. They weren't ready. They didn't see this coming. They're trying to strap on their belts and get their their instruments of war. Nobody would dare attack Nineveh. But now they are. The soldiers trip and fall as they make it up the steps to the city wall And then they get there and they realize that the enemy has already set up the siege tower. The siege tower would have been built to enable the enemy uh, to give them access into the city so that they could then go and tear apart the, the, unlock the gates and let the whole army in. So these soldiers stumble, they get to the top and there's the enemy and they're already approaching, coming into the city. Nahum describes describes the destruction as it takes place. Look at verses 6 through 8. The river gates are opened. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She is carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Now the enemy has opened up the river gates and the canal gates, and there's massive flooding in the streets of Nineveh. In fact, the kings of Nineveh built uh, these water canals as a fortress. You know, it's something to keep the enemies away. They're almost impenetrable, but now the onslaught of water is damaging the city walls and the buildings, and it even reaches the royal palace. The, The city is stripped off and carried away. The slave girls that served in the royal palace cry out in anguish as this tsunami-like flood sweeps away people to their death. Nineveh is like one of those above-ground pools. Have you ever put in one of those above-ground pools? It takes you hours upon hours to put it together as you struggle to read the confusing directions that are in broken English for some reason. And you locate the missing parts that you dropped. And after you search for the perfect flat spot in your small backyard, but you had to settle for the only area that would work because your kids are so excited that you have a pool now, but you know the ground isn't flat enough and you fill it up for hours upon hours anyway, but you still doubt it's going to work and you tell your wife it's not going to work because it's not flat enough, but she says yes it is so you say yes dear and while your kids get more and more excited because they finally have a pool in their backyard and even though it's just an above ground pool they're still excited and then you look outside your window and in a split second it gives way and your hours upon hours of increasing your water bill I mean filling up your new pool they go down the drain just like that that's Nineveh If you've never seen one of these pools lose their water and create a mini river, you're missing out, my friend. (laughs) Get on YouTube, America's Funniest Videos, and you will be amazed by how much water they hold and how much force they have when they give way. So get on America's Funniest Videos and watch some guy ride a motorcycle into it, and you'll see what happens. As they float away in the waves, Nineveh is learning this lesson. Taste and see that the Lord is good, or you will die of thirst. 
The city is in a panic. But a few noble citizens cry out in verses 8, Halt, halt! They're saying, wait guys, we can take them on! We're the Assyrians! But no one stops. And then Nahum switches gears again. As we hear the enemy army, the Medes and the Babylonians are now crying out in verse 9. They say, plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. Remember, Nineveh was bloodthirsty. They, they prided themselves on being the superpower of the day, just walking into your town and taking whatever they wanted. They would come into your town, conquer you, and do one of two things. They would either torture you and then kill you, or they would let you live, and you would be one of their slaves and one of their subjects. Either way, they were coming into your house, and they were getting your flat-screen TV and all of your precious jewelry that was handed down to you from your grandmother. The nation of Judah at this time were one of the subjects of the Assyrians. And so the Assyrians would show up whenever they want to and go through your house and take what they wanted and impose laws on you that you didn't like. And you had to pay tribute to them. But now the floodwaters have swept through Nineveh. People are being slaughtered, trying to escape. And the Medes and the Babylonians... Their armies cry out, plunder the silver, plunder the gold. Take all of the things that the Ninevites have taken from other people. Remember, Nineveh not only delighted in treating people wickedly, cutting them up, dismembering them, but they also delighted in stuff. They loved silver and gold. They had all kinds of treasures and stuff. Nineveh delighted in and bragged about all the stuff that they gathered from all of their horrific war adventures. They loved stuff. You read the annals of their history, and there are inventories of stuff that they plundered and delighted in. Gold bowls and golden censers and and apes and cows and donkeys and sheep and everything. They just write about it and said, this is what we love. This is what they delighted in. Stuff. I like what Pastor Vody Bauckham said. There's nothing wrong with having stuff as long as stuff does not have you. Nineveh had stuff, and stuff had Nineveh. We should pause here and think about these questions. Where is your treasure? What brings you the most joy? Would you be like the man when Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like the man who discovers a treasure buried in a field and the man went and sold all that he had so that he could buy the field in order to get the treasure? Do you value the kingdom of God that way? Do you value the gospel that way? Do you value Jesus Christ that way? That you would say, I will sell everything I have in order to get the treasure. There's a lot of noise in this chapter. Lots of horses galloping, swords clanging against other swords and against shields and swords hitting flesh and swords hitting bone. There's war. There are flash floods. There's screaming. There's panic. There's confusion. And over the top of all of that noise and all of that mayhem, Nahum is shouting, taste and see that the Lord is good or you will die of thirst. 
And then Nahum switches again to describe the city of Nineveh with this fourfold description. Look at verse 10. Desolate, desolation and ruin, hearts melt and knees tremble, anguish is in all loins, all faces grow pale. You, you have to hear the Hebrew words here, because Nahum stacks them up. The Hebrew words here for desolate, desolation and ruin, he, he stacks them up to make a point. He wants you to know by using very similar sounding Hebrew words that destruction is coming. He says in Hebrew, buka, umbuka, umbulaka. These words are stacked up by him to say destruction, destruction, ruin is coming to this great city. And then just like the four imperatives that Nahum cried out in verse 1, he now gives a fourfold description of the terror that is coming across the citizens of Nineveh. He says hearts melt, knees tremble, anguish is in all loins. And all faces grow pale. This is exactly what the Assyrians did to everyone that they conquered. And now it is coming back upon them. And then Nahum begins to describe Nineveh as a bloodthirsty lion who would capture its prey and drag it back to its den. Look at verses 11 and 12. Where is the lion's den? The feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and the lioness went, where his cubs were, with none to disturb. The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. The imagery is appropriate because when you read the annals of Assyria, the kings would describe themselves as going out as lions and and pouncing on their enemies. They would march out and hunt down their enemies like lions. And just as a lion hunts down its prey and drags the food back to the den to feed the young ones, so too Nineveh had hunted down nations, carted people and treasures back to their den to rip apart their flesh and then to delight in those things. One of their kings, King Ashurnasirpal, who may have been the king as Nahum was prophesying. He reigned from 669 to 627 B.C. This is a little journal entry of his, if you will. This is what he put in his diary. They, speaking of his army, they suspended their corpses from poles, tore their skin off, and affixed it to the city walls. I let dogs, swine, wolves, vultures, the birds of the heavens, and the sweet water fish devour their cut off limbs. The people who lived in the city and had not come out and had not acknowledged my rule, I slew. And now speaking, and he says, and I chopped off their heads and cut off their lips. And now speaking about one of the kings that he captured, he says, I bored through his jaw with my cutting dagger, pulled a rope through his cheek and the sides of his face, and attached a dog chain to him and let him guard the cage at the east gate of Nineveh. This is what brought them pleasure. This is what got them worked up. Like when we watched the Olympics, we're like, oh, that was awesome. They did this and they delighted in it and they loved it. 
They loved gold and silver and treasures, and they loved absolute brutality. They were like lions hunting down their prey, dragging the spoils of war back to their den and taking delight in and feasting on those things and drinking in those things to try to satisfy their souls. They were bloodthirsty. And the bloodthirsty, greedy Assyrians did not treasure Yahweh, the sovereign Lord. So, and maybe you don't know this about the Lord, he does not take this lightly. He does not take it lightly when his creation looks at him and says, no thank you, I would rather delight in this. And that's why he shows up in verse 13. Look at verse 13. This is the Lord speaking. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. The Lord is against them. And the Lord is against any person, whether you're a citizen of Nineveh or a citizen of the United States of America. If you take delight in anything more than him, he is against you. See, humanity specializes in taking joy and delight in a million other things. And we are specialized in injustices and the abuse of the weak. The Lord is against and will get all those who molest children, rape women, sell people into the sex market, swindle investors, abuse the poor and the downtrodden, and abort innocent babies. The Jerry Sanduskies and the Joe Paternos who allow evils and atrocities will give account to the Lord one day. The killers who strike movie theaters at midnight and the killers who interrupt seek worship temples and kill people will be brought before the sovereign Lord one day. The doctors who perform and the lawmakers who pass legislation to legalize abortion will give account. And the voters who vote for those laws to kill innocent babies will give account one day. They may escape our memories, they may escape our TVs and the front pages of our newspapers, but they will not escape their appointment with God. They will not escape His memory. And unless they repent and trust in Jesus... They will suffer in hell forever where they will long for just one drop of water on their tongues. They will cry out, just give me one drop, but it will never come. They will literally die of thirst forever. The Ninevites aren't the only people who turn to other things to find fulfillment We all do it. People in Judah were doing it. 
people in the church do it. We all thirst after a million things, but we will never ever quench our thirst apart from Jesus. We are all like bloodthirsty lions who pounce on sin and and drag stuff back to the dens of our hearts where we may feast on them and delight in them. And the whole time we're thinking, this will bring me the satisfaction that I crave. And so time after time, we drag things back to the den of our hearts and, and devour it, thinking, I will quench my thirst with this thing. But we were not made to feast on the world. We were made to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Get the point of Nahum chapter 2. Taste, taste and see that the Lord is good, that He is all satisfying, or you will die of thirst in this life and in the life to come. Do you remember how thirsty Jill was? We'll back up in the story. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill? I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had seen his stern face could do that. And her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing that she ever had to do. But she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. You didn't need to drink much of it, for it quenched your thirst at once. Before she tasted it, she had been intending to make a dash away from the lion the moment she had finished. Now she realized that this would be, on the whole, the most dangerous thing of all. She got up and stood there with her lips still wet from drinking. There is no other stream, Grace. In the gospel, Jesus invites you to come and drink. Turn from your sin. Repent. Turn from finding joy in other things. Turn from living your own way. Turn from breaking his commandments. Turn from saying, no, thank you, God. Turn from that. Be stricken in your heart. Grieve. And then trust that Jesus lived the life that you could never live, and he died for you to bring you to the triune God, to bring you to the fountain of living water. Come and drink today. There is no other stream. He is the most refreshing water you will ever taste. He will quench your thirst at once. Don't dash away from him. Don't think that you can dash away from him because you can't. Don't dash away from him. It will be the most dangerous thing 
that you could ever do. If you dash away from him, you will die. You will die of thirst in this life and in the life to come. But he offers the water today and says, I accept you as you are. If you repent and believe in me, you come and I will give you my son's righteousness and I will take your sin and put it upon him and pour my wrath and anger out upon my son for you to draw you to me. Will you come and drink today? We were not made to drink from the broken, empty cisterns of this world. We were not made to see all that glitters, all the gold and the shiny things that the world says, find your satisfaction in this. What is it for you today that you're going to that you know is wrong, that your heart longs for? Will you forsake it today? And when you come to the water, that when you drink, you will drink, and then you will say, ah, he satisfies. And if you don't believe me, believe the one that made you. He knows how you're supposed to work. He made you. He created you. He created you for him, not for all these things. Believe his words if you won't believe mine. Jesus said it in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Will you come and drink today? It's free. Let's pray. Father, what incredible words out of Nahum chapter 2. We are all guilty of trying to find joy and delight in other things, God. We have gone to the broken, empty cisterns of the world, which in fact were just toilets that hadn't been flushed for ages, God. And we have all taken our ladles and dipped them in and tried to drink. And yet, The fountain of living water is there. Would you forgive us of that, God? And then would you open our ears to hear the rippling stream of the gospel? And may we come to you, the mighty lion of Judah. And may we feel drawn to you in your presence, even though you are powerful. And may we go to the water and drink and be satisfied. And then may you get great glory as we drink and say, ah, in Jesus' name, amen. Our hope is that today's message empowers you by God's grace to live God's way. For more information, visit us online at gracebath.net.